Uh, I love this city of Prague. It's uh, one of my favorite cities in the world. Partly because if you look in a Prague phone book, you'll find a lot of Nicodemus. Now, I, I don't know anybody in Prague, but I take it that my name, Nicodemus, it must be Czech because there are a lot of Nicodemus in the Prague phone book. Uh, but the real reason I love Prague is because of its age-old beauty. Uh, if you've never been there, it's just, it's a gorgeous city. And I've been told by a tour guide that one of the reasons its venerable buildings are still standing is because the Czechs have a habit, they have a pattern of always giving in to the enemy. They surrender quickly. And so their city has never been bombed. So you've got all these churches, these cathedrals, these castles, the concert halls that are still standing. Beautiful. Now, if you go to Prague, I was just reading in my news magazine that they're, they're currently offering a brand new tour of the city, and, and this is for true. This is a corrupt tour, they call it. Uh, what they will do is they'll take you to various points in the city where corruption occurred. Political, dirty dealing, financial scandals. Uh, for example, you will go to this wide open field, there's nothing on the field, and they'll explain to you, well, this is where an Olympic stadium was supposed to be built and they collected millions of dollars and the construction never began. And then they'll take you to City Hall and they'll tell you uh, story after story about crooked politicians, the corrupt tour. And the, the, the leaders, the creators of this tour explain that their intention is to show you that just because something is negative doesn't mean you can't be entertained by it. I read that and I thought, well, that's twisted. <laughs> Just because corruption is negative doesn't mean you can't be entertained by it. You know, on the surface, the world's corruption may seem to be entertaining, but i got to tell you, it's no laughing matter. In, in fact, we have all contributed to the corruption of the world. We, we may never be players in major scandals, but we've all engaged in our own forms of corruption on a daily basis. How would you like it if they formed a corrupt tour of your life? Yeah, let, let's just take this last week. They sell tickets, and, and people are able to tour. They're able to hear every nasty thing that came out of your mouth this last week, especially while you were driving. Okay. Or, or they, they're able to see on a jumbo screen a portrayal of your private thoughts. So every greedy thought that you had this week, every selfish, self-centered thought, every unfaithful thought, thought that you had with regard to your spouse, every lustful thought, it's all up there on the screen. And, and besides that, we're, we're able to see every temper tantrum you threw, every shopping binge you were on this week, every, every place you went on the internet, we get to view it all. See, sin, sin is not glamorous, sin is disastrous. The corrupt tour of your life may be entertaining to other people, but your corruption leaves you in a mess. Which is why Jesus came to earth that first Christmas. He came to save us from our sins. Jesus came to save us from our sins. In fact, that's what his name means. The name Jesus, English Jesus, comes from the Hebrew Yeshua. Yeshua means literally the Lord saves. The Lord saves. Now I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Okay, first book of the New Testament, first chapter. We are in the second week of an Advent series. The series is all about getting us ready for Christmas, anticipating the first coming of Jesus. And we're doing that by studying the names that were given Christ at his birth. So last week we began the series, we looked at the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
And today we're going to look at the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. So let me read to you uh, actually the same text we began with last weekend. Matthew 1, verses 18 and following, because both of the names, Emmanuel and Jesus, are found in this particular text. So Matthew 1, verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. I explained last week this, this was a legally binding engagement. In their culture, if you broke the engagement, it was like getting a divorce. Okay, so Mary's pledged to be married to Joseph. She's still living at home, looking forward to her wedding date, but she's, uh, she's committed to him. Before they came together, before they had sex, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now pay close attention to verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. What does Jesus mean? Why is he called Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. Okay, three disastrous aspects of our sins that Jesus saves us from. If you haven't taken your outline out, I'd encourage you to do so. Fill it in as we go, because this is what you want to reflect on during this Christmas season. Jesus as Savior, who provides, number one, salvation from sin's penalty. Salvation from sin's penalty. Now, I, I want you to move to another New Testament passage with me. We're going to take a look at John chapter 3. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. And as you're turning, I want to tell you an Old Testament story. Okay, so you're turning to the New Testament book of John chapter 3. But here's an Old Testament story from the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21. Moses has delivered God's people from 430 years of slavery in Egypt. And they're en route to the promised land so-called because it's a special piece of property that God is going to give them. He's promised it to them. But all along the way, I mean, you, you would think that this, this group of people would be overjoyed. They've come out of bondage. They're headed to the promised land. But all along the way, they do nothing but complain, 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 complain. They're, they're thirsty, so they complain about lack of water until God miraculously causes water to, to flow out of a rock. But that doesn't satisfy them. Now they complain, well, we got water, but we've got no food. So God drops bread from heaven, which the people can pick up off the ground. It's called manna, which literally means the Hebrew is, what is this? Okay, it was the food of angels, those scripture says. You think that would make them happy, but no. Now they're complaining, manna, manna, manna. All we get is manna. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it's manna. Can't you give us some meat? So God causes quail to fall in their camp. Now they've got meat. They're happy, right? No, they're still complaining. Now they complain that the quail has no seasoning. I I'm serious. They complain that they don't have onions and garlic and leeks like they used to have in Egypt. Conveniently forgetting that they'd been slaves in Egypt. So they're complaining about food, but that's not all. They complain about their enemies who are harassing them along the way, even though God has protected them every step of the way. They still complain about their enemies. They complain about Moses' leadership. They complain about God himself. I mean, they're, they're like 
disgruntled teenagers on a family vacation. <laughs> I'm not talking about your kids, of course. But I, I could remember occasions, family vacations, when I wanted to stop the car and say, okay, you, you're getting out, you're walking. Back to Illinois. <laughs> All right? So th- th- this complaining, this is what Moses is facing in, in Numbers 21. It finally reaches the point where God himself has grown tired of it. Because at its root, this complaining is blasphemy. What the people are doing in reality is slandering God's good name. They're slandering God's character. Now, this is an interesting story, but what I want to say is especially interesting about it is that hundreds of years later, Jesus retells the story. And then he applies it to himself. He says, this story is like an analogy. In fact, I'm like part of, of the story. Now, let let, let me quickly continue the story, and then we're going to read John 3 to see how it serves as an analogy. God had finally taken enough uh, of their carping, and so he sends venomous snakes in their midst, and people start getting bitten, and they're dying. And so they come to Moses, and they say, okay, we get it. We're jerks. Our our behavior, our attitude has, has been sinful. Can you go to God? Can you tell him, sorry, and get rid of the snakes? And so God says to Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to craft a bronze snake, and I want you to put it on top of a pole. And if people get bitten, tell them to look at the bronze snake, and they'll be healed. They'll live. So hundreds of years later, Jesus tells this story. He says it's an analogy, and that he's like the bronze snake in the story. So pick it up at John chapter 3, verse 14. Let me read this to you. Jesus is speaking. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now some really familiar verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus says the story of snake-bitten people is an analogy for us today. Okay, So what are the similarities between this this story and our story? Let, Let me quickly point out four similarities to you. Similarity number one is we face a similar problem. Now, in in Moses' day, people were being punished for their sins by snake bites, deadly snake bites. Today's scripture tells us that our our sin is going to be punished by death. You've heard me explain this before, but I'll explain it again. If death seems like a harsh penalty for our sin, let me remind you that disobedience to God, defying the giver of life, unplugging from the life source results in death. It's really quite natural. So the penalty, what we deserve for our sins, is spiritual, physical, eternal death. We've got a common problem with the people in Moses' day. Second similarity is there's a common solution. In Moses' day, God said, okay, I'll provide a rescue from sin's penalty of death, these snake bites. And he told Moses to craft this bronze snake and put it on a pole. In the same way today, God says, I'll save you from your sins. And so he provides not a snake on a pole. He gives his one and only son who's lifted up on a cross. 
Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous died for the unrighteous. See, that's the solution provided by God, not something that we're able to provide for ourselves. We need it to come from God. And then the third similarity is, is there's a common offer. What did God offer the snake-bitten people in Moses' day? Life. He offered them life. Well, what does God offer people, sinful, death-destined people today? He offers them life. In fact, Jesus describes this life two times in the verses I read to you, verses 14 through 18 of John 3, as eternal life. Not just life, but eternal life. It's important that you understand when the Bible uses the expression eternal life, it's not just talking about life that goes on and on and on and on. There is something to be said about the quantity of life he offers, but he's also, Scripture is also talking about the quality of life. Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, I've come to give you life to the full, maximum life, life in relationship with God. So the life that's offered through Christ, eternal life, is a life of both unimaginable quality as well as unending quantity. And then finally, fourthly, there's a similar condition. How do you get this life? Well, in Moses' day, all people had to do to be spared death and be given life is just look to the bronze snake. Now, I suppose there were some people who said, oh, that's crazy. That's stupid. I'm not going to do that. And they died. What is the condition today where well, you need to look to Christ? If you want to be saved from death's penalty of spiritual, physical, eternal death, you've got to look to Christ. Now, the expression here in John 3 is not look to Christ. The expression is believe in. In fact, you'll find four believe ins in the text I just read to you. If you've got your own Bible, you might want to underline or circle them. And let me explain for clarification here, there's a huge difference between believing somebody and believing in somebody. You know, let me illustrate. If I, I tell you next presidential election, I'm going to run for president. Now, you could say, well, I, I believe you. Or you could say, I believe in you. And there's a huge difference, you see? Okay, if you say, I believe you, what you're saying is, I believe you're declaring truth. I'll acknowledge you're speaking truth. This is something you're, you're really going to do. But if you say, I believe in you, what you're saying is you're going to be on my team. You're going to be part of this. You're going to be behind me. When, when, when we look to Christ for the life that's offered through him, it's important that we're not just believing Jesus. We're believing what Scripture says about him, that he's God's son, come in the flesh, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave, it's okay to believe those things, but it won't save you from eternal death. You've got to believe in Jesus. Put your trust wholly in him. Surrender your life to him. You know, Jesus even says it in negative terms. Look at the second half of verse 18. He warns us that those who choose not to believe in him currently stand condemned. Now, that's a dangerous position to be in. And when some folks hear that today, it doesn't, doesn't go over too well with them. You know, I, I've had people say to me somewhat cynically, well, let me get this straight. So if I reject Jesus, I forfeit eternal life, and I end up in hell? 
I mean, that, that's the penalty for simply rejecting Jesus? And I usually reply, well, no, that's not the penalty for simply rejecting Jesus. It's the penalty for a lifetime of sin. You see the difference? Let me remind you that sin unplugs you from the giver of life. That's why sin's penalty is death and eternal death is hell. Please understand that nobody approaches Jesus in a neutral condition. We don't come to him in a neutral state and so you accept or you reject and, oh, if I reject, I get hell? Come on. You don't approach Jesus in a neutral state. Every one of us approaches Jesus already condemned by our sin. So if we reject Jesus' offer of salvation, it's our sin that lands us in hell. You following this? Maybe an analogy would help here. You're on a ship. The ship goes down. You're flailing around in the water. You're drowning. And a guy comes by in a lifeboat, and he's picking people up. He's rescuing people one after the other. But when he gets to you, you refuse to be helped. Okay, now what's it going to say on your death certificate? What are they going to list as the cause of death? Are they going to say, cause of death, refuse the help of the guy in the lifeboat? Of course not. They're going to say, cause of death, drowned. You know, you drowned. Friends, people without Christ are drowning in their sins right now. So if we refuse the only one who can save us, we will die eternally. But the cause of our death won't be our rejection of Christ, strictly speaking. It will be the sin from which we refuse to be saved. You get it? This is so important. Don't accuse the Bible's God. Don't allow any of your friends to accuse the Bible's God of condemning people for eternity just because they reject Jesus as Savior? It's people's sin that results in their condemnation. Don't accuse God of being fickle. God is loving. In fact, the verses we read, especially the familiar verse 16, tells us that it's God's love that motivates him to provide a way for people to be saved from their condemnation. That's God's desire. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You know, that word world appears four times in these verses. God is reaching out to everybody through Jesus. Another word that underscores this truth is the word whoever in this text. Find it and circle it. This Savior is for whoever wants him. And I like the way that the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, God wants all men to be saved. And to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom. Listen. A ransom for all men. Jesus. The savior from sin's penalty of death. He is there for the taking. He provides salvation first of all from sin's penalty. Secondly. Jesus provides salvation from sin's power, from sin's power. Now, I want to look at another passage of Scripture, so uh, turn to Titus chapter 2, okay? I hope you'll look for it in your Bible. It's one of the T uh, Bible books toward the end of your New Testament. That's how I always remember where it is. You find First and Second Thessalonians, and then First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. So look for the T's and go to you find Titus. 
And while you're turning, I want you to take a look at this painting that we're going to put up on the screen. Here, you recognize this? Call out if you know the name of the painting. Okay, Washington Crossing, the Delaware, painted back in 1852, an oil on canvas. Famous, famous painting, and, and particularly famous because of the event it depicts. The, the event took place in 1776, a point in the Revolutionary War when things were not going well for Americans. We were suffering under British tyranny, and the war began, and we were losing battle after battle after battle. Now, just what's interesting about this picture, historians love to point out all the inaccuracies in it. You know, it's like one of those pictures that you see in the newspaper, one of those uh, word uh, or picture puzzles. Uh, for, for example, the, the flag there didn't exist at that point. The American flag, the stars and stripes, it didn't exist in 1776, and People who know about boats say, no way would that boat have floated with that many people in it. <laughs> you know, and then you got sunlight peeking through the clouds there, which is kind of interesting because he crossed the Delaware in the dead of night. Yeah, and you see the chunks of ice. If you've ever been to the Delaware River, no way will you ever see chunks of ice like that. The, uh, the painter was a German, and they figure, figure he probably modeled the ice on the Danube River. For, for this particular painting. It was actually raining the night that Washington crossed the Delaware. And they also point out that if, if Washington had stood up like that in a rowboat, he probably would have capsized the thing. So, but in spite of those inaccuracies, the event it depicts is significant. Okay? Deliverance from tyranny is about to come. There's about to be a change in the war. This surprise attack is going to lead to victories at Trenton and then at Princeton, and the tide of the war is going to change. Now, I want to suggest to you that every Christ follower ought to carry a similar picture around in his or her imagination. Not a picture of Washington crossing the Delaware, but a picture of Jesus Christ standing outside of his empty tomb. Jesus' death on the cross frees us, saves us from sin's penalty, death. But it's Jesus' resurrection from the dead that provides us with salvation from sin's power, sin's tyranny. And that's what, what the next passage, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, is all about. So let me read the text to you, and then I'll stop along the way and, and, and explain some of the words and expressions and so on. Verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation, there's our salvation word, has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, stop there for a moment. I'm going to read one more verse in a minute. But let me explain some of this. The grace of God that brings salvation. This is actually an allusion to Jesus. He's the grace of God that brings salvation. In fact, John in his gospel says in John 1 verse 17 that the law came through Moses, but grace, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Jesus brings salvation. Now, I want you to note in the passage I just read to you, Paul is not talking here about salvation from sin's penalty. He's talking about salvation from sin's power. He's talking about the grace that gives us the ability, verse 12, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. I love in my Bible how they capitalize no and put it in quotes. It's as if you look temptation in the eye and you say, no, not going to do it. Now, where do you get the strength 
the determination, the willpower to do that. You get it from the salvation which the one who comes with grace has provided you with, okay, from Jesus. And, and, and it's salvation, note the last line of verse 12, in this present age. Again, we're not talking about salvation from sins, penalty down the road, hell down the road. We're talking about salvation today, freedom from the power of sin today. Why, why does Christ want to give us this power, this salvation from sin's power? Verse 14 He gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself, listen to this, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now, do you pick up from these verses that Jesus wants to save us not only from sin's penalty, but from sin's power? He doesn't want people to be controlled by ungodliness and by worldly passions, according to the text. And why not? Well, because he wants us to be free to live lives of fruitful service to him. Friends, let me tell you, a lot of Christ followers I know have a very limited view of salvation. They think of salvation strictly in terms of forgiveness. They want to be forgiven for their sins, but the truth of the matter is they don't want to be delivered from their sins. They want to be forgiven. They just don't want to be delivered. They want to hang on to their anger. They want to hang on to their lust. They want to hang on to their selfish materialism. They want to hang on to the idols that they pursue when they should be pursuing Christ. You know, I think it was Augustine, the famous Christian leader of the 5th century, who cried out in a moment of complete honesty, God, save me from my sins. But not quite yet. You know, what sins in your life have you taken that attitude toward? What things are you dabbling in? You know that they're wrong, and you definitely want to be saved from their penalty. But for the time being, you just as soon continue to live under their power. Don't you understand that as long as sin has you in its power, you're not able to be the kind of person that Paul describes in the closing line of the Titus 2 passage I just read to you, people who are eager to do what is good. You can't do the good until you shed the bad, until you're free from sin's tyranny. I love the story of Zacchaeus in this regard. Zacchaeus was a tax collector in the town of Jericho back in Jesus' day. His story is told in Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was a, uh, he was a dishonest guy. He had cheated a lot of people out of money, overcharging them for their taxes, accepting bribes from them. And one day he heard that Jesus was coming through Jericho and he wanted to see Jesus. Now, Zacchaeus was a very uh, short man. I've always pictured him as kind of a Danny DeVito, Okay. And so he runs into the center of town, Jesus' path, and he climbs up in a sycamore tree. Now, if you've ever seen a sycamore tree, they have a lot of horizontal branches. They, they're ideal for climbing. In fact, I've been in the, in, the, in the town of Jericho on several occasions, and they'll take you to a sycamore tree in the center of town, and they like to hint at the fact that this could be the very sycamore tree that Zacchaeus climbed. Don't believe them. They'll tell you all sorts of things in the Holy Lands that, you know, aren't, aren't necessarily true. That tree's about three or 400 years old. It's not 2,000 years old. But it's probably like a tree that Zacchaeus would have climbed. And so Jesus comes in route down the street, stands under the tree, looks up, sees Zacchaeus, says, Zacchaeus, let's go to your house for dinner. 
And over dinner, there were some other guests there. Over dinner, they must have had, reading between the lines of the story in Luke 19, they must have had a very intense, passionate discussion. Because when the the end of the meal comes, Zacchaeus stands to his feet, and in front of all his guests, he says, I'm going to give half of what I own to the poor, and I'm going to repay people I've cheated four times the amount I cheated them out of. And Jesus looks at Zacchaeus, and do you recall what he says? He says, salvation has come to this house today. Now, what is Jesus saying? Salvation has come to this house. Does he mean Zacchaeus is finally forgiven for his sins? I'm sure that's part of it. But but Jesus is saying something much more than that. Jesus is saying that Zacchaeus has been freed from the power of his sins. It's obvious he's no longer under the control of materialism, greed, dishonesty. That's salvation in the sense, I think, that Jesus is talking about in Luke 19. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you see evidence in your life that Jesus is saving you from sin's power? You know, is Jesus cleaning up your language? Is Jesus changing the standards of the movies you watch or you rent? Has Jesus put the brakes on how much money you spend on yourself? Is he redirecting some of your income to his work in the world? Is that happening in your life? Are are, are you experiencing with Jesus' help better control of your, your anger, better control of your impatience, less irritability than you used to have? Friend, I I hope there's a time in your life when you cry out to Jesus, Jesus, save me from my sins, meaning please forgive me. Please save me from sin's penalty, death. But I also hope that every day of your life you say, Jesus, save me from my sins, meaning please give me the power, please give me the determination to say no to sin. Please save me from sin's power. You get it? Good. Third and finally, Jesus, Yeshua, the one who saves, provides salvation from sin's presence. Let's take a look at a third passage that tells us about Jesus' salvation. It's Revelation 21. So uh, this is an easy one to find. Last book of the Bible, second to last chapter. You know, one of the common icebreakers that you've probably asked guests around your dinner table if you ever use icebreaker questions to get people talking. So what is your favorite place in the world? Okay, what is the favorite place you've gone to? And people will tell you about the mountains in Colorado or some sandy white beach that they like to park on. Or they might tell you about their favorite, favorite city. My, my favorite spot, one of my favorite spots is a little village up in Door County, Wisconsin, where I could sit on the pier as the sun sets and watch it go down over Lake Michigan. Yeah, my, my favorite spot. Well, what John the Apostle is describing in Revelation 21 is the very best place in the world. Hands down, no competition. Uh, of course, I need to qualify. It's not the very best place in this world. It's the very best place in the new world that God is eventually going to create. Scripture says that God makes a new heaven, a new earth at the end of time, and Revelation 21 is a description of that place. Now, I read a verse, I read verse 3 to you from Revelation 21 last week, pointing out, as we talked about Emmanuel, the name given to Jesus that means God with us, is that one of the uh, the greatest characteristics of the new heaven and new earth is God's going to be there. 
where we're going to experience his presence firsthand. Okay, undiluted God, God with us. So I'm going to pick it up at verse 3, reread verse 3, and then read a few other verses. As I read to you this description of what heaven's going to be like, you're going to hear a lot of references to things that are going to be in the new heaven and new earth. But I want you to be, be paying attention to what is not going to be in the new heaven and the new earth. Okay, just make a little list as I read. What is not going to be in the new heaven and the new earth? Pick it up, Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from God's throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. This is that Emmanuel name. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Let's skip a few verses. Go down to verse 7. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Flip over a page in your Bible to the last verse of chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, the new heaven, the new earth. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay, what will not be in the new heaven and the new earth? Okay, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. No, no people who are cowardly, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, idolaters, and, and so on. In, in other words, no people who are sinners. You say, well, well, wait a second, aren't we all sinners? But you see, there are sinners who have been saved, and so they'll be there. And then there are sinners who have not been saved. And as John describes it here, their names are not in the Lamb's book of life. They've never surrendered to Christ, and so their name is not in Jesus' book. But one day, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, you're going to live in a new heaven and new earth, in which, listen, in which sin has been banished forever. Now, on a personal note, oh my goodness, that gives me so much joy as I ruminate on this. Because it means I will no longer have to struggle with temptation. It means that I will no longer do stupid things that hurt me and hurt other people. It means that I will no longer have to say day after day, even hour after hour, Oh God, would you forgive me? Would you forgive me? Would you forgive I'm so sorry. This is the ultimate expression of salvation. We will, listen, we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. And the banishment of sin will not only have a huge impact upon people, it will have a huge impact, Scripture says, on our environment, on creation itself. Did you know that the cause of disease, the cause of drought, the cause of famine, of natural disasters is indirectly the result of our sin? Our sin has made a wreck of the world itself. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation is groaning as it waits for the return of Jesus. It's groaning. You want some evidences of this groaning? 
Last year, 820 natural disasters were reported around the world that killed a total of 27,000 people. And that's nothing. Poor sanitation kills a child every 20 seconds. Every 20 seconds. Lack of food kills 18,000 children a day. Disease, you take one big disease like cancer, it'll kill 8 million people worldwide this year. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for a world in which sin and its effects are banished. You know, Mary and Joseph were told to give their little baby boy the name Jesus. The Lord saves because... He will save his people from their sins. Let me ask you, are, are you one of Jesus' people? Have you surrendered your life to him? Do you know that you've been saved from sin's penalty, from spiritual, physical, eternal death because Christ took that penalty on your behalf, offers you forgiveness, but you've got to put your trust in him. You've got to believe, not just believe him, but believe in him. Have you ever done that? Are you being saved on a daily basis from sin's power? Or are you content to live under the tyranny of sin? You want to be forgiven, you just don't want to be delivered. Friend, start longing for Jesus' salvation from sin's power. The ability to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions so that you can live a life that pleases God, a life of service to him. Do you look forward to being saved from sin's presence, to living in the new heaven and the new earth where sin will be forever banished? Now here's a bonus thought, a bonus thought to this sermon. God not only wants you to be a, a beneficiary of this salvation, he wants you to be a conduit. He wants you to be a channel of this salvation to others. I want you to see something the Apostle Paul said in this regard. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible. I've become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. Now, in the fuller context of this passage, what Paul is saying is, listen, I'm going to accommodate myself to others. I'm going to build relationships with as many people as I possibly can so that I could share Christ with them so that I can save them. And some of us read that and we say, whoa, whoa, Paul, what are you talking about here? What, what, are, you, what are you saying? I'm going to save people. Don't you understand? You can't save people. Only Jesus can save people. Well, yes, Paul knows that at one level... Only Jesus can save people, but at another level, Paul knows there's a sense in which he can participate in the saving of people, that he can be used by Jesus to save people from sin's penalty, from sin's power, from sin's presence. Let, let, let me explain to you before we move on to communion how God can use you to save people. Okay, you could save people from sin's penalty. From spiritual, physical, eternal death by sharing the good news of Jesus with them. Just tell them your story, how you've been forgiven because of what Christ did on the cross for you. You say, oh, I'm not very articulate. Well, then bring them to Christ's community church. Let us share the good news with them. Bring, bring them to This is Christmas. 
This is why we do a production like this, not to entertain people who already know Jesus, but to give people who know Jesus an opportunity to share that good news with their friends. One of the guys in my, in my men's community group bought 48 tickets to This is Christmas and has given them away to people at work and neighbors and so on. Are you bringing people with you to This is Christmas? Not too late. You can save people from, from sin's power. You say, well, how do you do that? I'll give you a couple of ways. Get in a community group. You know, circle up with brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling to live for him, who are struggling to shed sins in their lives. And as you pray for each other and you hold each other accountable and you dig into God's word together, you're helping them experience salvation from sin's power. That's how it works, in community with each other. Another way you can do it is, is by serving in some ministry. You know, I think about all the ch- hundreds of children at our four campuses, hundreds of middle school and high school students in the formative years of their life learning how to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to Christ. Have you thought about volunteering in kids' world or in Genesis or in Mosaic? A great way to save people, young people, from Sin's power. Or how about on a Tuesday night volunteering at our care night where people are getting saved from addictions, from the power of sin to tyrannize their lives through alcohol or through pornography or whatever. And you could save people from from sin's presence as well. You know, not not the ultimate banishment of sin in the new heaven and the new earth, but the the banishment of some of the effects of sin in their lives, like poverty and hunger and so on. We've got community impact second Saturdays, every second Saturday, where we go out to serve the poor and the destitute. We've got go teams going to places like Nicaragua serving on medical teams. We're asking you at this time of the year, this last month of December, to give large to feed my starving children. We packed a million meals, but we still have to pay for them. We've raised $47,000, but the price tag is $250,000. So we got $200,000 to go, and we're not going to get it through loose change. We're going to get it because people say, you know, I'm going to cut back on what I was going to spend on gifts for family and friends who don't need this stuff anyway, and I'm going to banish sin's impact on starving children by giving to this gift for Feed My Starving Children. You get it? See, we could participate in the salvation that Jesus offers, a sin-ravaged planet. And you can save people from sin's penalty, sin's power, sin's presence.